Welcome back to Sad Girl Study Guides. As always, I'm your host, Amelia, and as always, I am sad. In this study guide, I'm going to be diving into the life, times, and work of romantic poet William Wordsworth. In school, you probably learned about William Wordsworth as that guy who wrote that poem about daffodils and had a very appropriate name for a famous poet. But his study guide has a lot more, including a rad bromance, as well as a bad romance, some helpful connections, and an illegitimate child, because after all, he is a romantic. Let's begin. William Wordsworth is born April 7th, 1770, in the town of Cockermouth in England's Lake District. He is the second of five children. His parents are John Wordsworth and Anne Cookson. John is a landowner and a legal agent for a local lord, James Lowther, the Earl of Lonsdale, and Anne is just a housewife because that's what you are when you're a woman in the late 1700s. The Wordsworth family lives in Cockermouth. John Wordsworth is able to buy a fairly sizable mansion through his connections with the Lowther family and also manages to buy some property in the neighboring town of Sockbridge. As a result, the Wordsworth family has a fairly good bit of land, all things considered. Yes, they most definitely are not members of the English gentry or upper class, but they definitely are not poor. Things are looking pretty good for the Wordsworths. Let's talk a little bit about the various Wordsworth siblings. William has an older brother, Richard, two younger brothers, John and Christopher, and a younger sister, Dorothy. He is the closest to Dorothy, who is only a year younger than he is. The two will remain close for the rest of their lives. With the other brothers, John is going to eventually become a poet as well, although John is never going to do quite as well in terms of his poetry as William will. Christopher will eventually become a professor at Trinity College at Cambridge, and older brother Richard will eventually become a merchant. For most of William's childhood, William and his siblings are going to bounce between the town of Cockermouth and the town of Penrith, where William's mother's family lives. The reason why the Wordsworth children are moving between the two towns is because their father is away for work and their mother's family is going to watch them. When they do spend time with their father, John is going to teach them how to read, and William is going to love reading. As a child, he's going to particularly enjoy the works of William Shakespeare and John Milton, and those two poets' use of blank verse is really going to inspire his later writing. While he's staying with his mother's family at Penrith, William is going to start wandering in nature. While William does get along really well with his mother, he isn't exactly a huge fan of her extended family and is going to start doing these long nature walks in order to avoid family 
tension. Personally, I would not do those nature walks to avoid family tension. I would just lock myself into my bedroom with a good book, but each to their own. Around this time period, William also is going to learn how to ice skate, and he is absolutely going to love ice skating. Ice skating is going to be a major theme in some of his later poems. But William's idyllic childhood isn't going to last all that long, because when he's eight in 1778, his mother dies, and the Wordsworth children get split up. He won't see some of his siblings, especially his BFF, sister Dorothy, for another nine years until he's 17 because Dorothy is sent to live with his mother's family in Penrith and William is sent to a proper school. Before Anne's death, William and the rest of the children were educated by a local woman at a local school where they were taught normal, like, things along with more traditional things. He really enjoyed his time at this local school known as the Burkett School and during his time at the Burkett School he befriended a local girl named Mary Hutchinson. Mary Hutchinson is going to play quite a role in William's later life but we are not there yet. But anyways, William's mother is dead and he has to be sent to a proper school. He gets sent to the Hawkshead Grammar School. The Hawkshead Grammar School has a reputation for being an excellent school, which means it helps its students get in to various universities, by which we mean Oxford and Cambridge. Hawkshead Grammar School really focuses on math and the classics because it's the 1700s. We don't care about things like history and science. During his time at the Hawkside Grammar School, Wordsworth is going to fall in love with both Latin and poetry because, as it turns out, one of his professors is going to teach poetry outside of just Shakespeare. What a revolutionary idea. While Wordsworth isn't going to read much modern literature during his time at school, he is going to start reading some more modern poets, especially the graveyard poets from the early 1700s who wrote a lot about moodiness and gloom and took their inspiration from, surprise, surprise, graveyards. These graveyard poets are going to definitely have an influence on Wordsworth's early works. He is going to write about some similar emotions. And it's not just the graveyard poets who are going to inspire Wordsworth. The headmaster at Hawkshead, a man named William Taylor, is going to tell Wordsworth to write some of his own original poems. And Wordsworth is like, okay, cool. I can totally do that. And luckily for him, the Hawkshead Grammar School is located right in the middle of England's Lake District. And William has some freedom. He's allowed to wander in nature when he's not off studying. And he's going to do that. And these wanderings in nature are going to give him ideas for his poetry. But we're not quite there yet. One last thing to note about William's time at Hawkshead is he's going to board with a local family, the Tyson family. And he's going to be really close to the Tyson family and really enjoy his time living with them, and generally his time at school. 
Normally, when we think of poets and artists and writers, especially in the 17 and 1800s, there's this assumption that they're just utterly miserable at school, but William Wordsworth sort of breaks from that stereotype. Tragically, in 1783, William's father, John, dies unexpectedly. William is only 13, and suddenly he and his other siblings are orphans, and things are going to get a little bit worse. Because while his father did leave the children money, he didn't actually leave behind a will, even though John Wordsworth was a lawyer. So there's nothing saying how the money should be divided up or what it should be used for. Also, John Wordsworth didn't have quite enough of an inheritance to be able to send all four of the Wordsworth boys off to university. They're going to have to choose which of the sons shows the most potential. On top of that, Wordsworth's former employer, Lord Lowther, owed him quite a bit of money at the time of his death and refuses to pay. The Wordsworth family does sue Lord Lowther, but that lawsuit isn't going to be sorted out until 1802. So suddenly, the Wordsworth children are orphans in a little bit of a precarious financial situation. At last, the family decides that William and Christopher Wordsworth show the most academic promise, and those two are chosen for college. There's now quite a bit of pressure on William Wordsworth. He has to perform quite well academically because he's the one chosen to go to university. And when he goes to university, he's going to have to continue to do well so he can win scholarships and keep his place because the family cannot afford to pay for it entirely. Luckily for William, in 1787, he starts getting some poems published. He gets a sonnet published in the European magazine, which is very exciting if you're 17, and he also gets in to Cambridge. Woo-hoo, William! He also gets to spend the summer with his family, and he sees his younger sister Dorothy for the first time in nine years. While he had missed his sister a lot, he has a bad relationship with the rest of his family, including the rest of his siblings, and technically the Wordsworth kids are homeless for the summer, so even though there's a happy reunion, things still aren't exactly looking great. He does start at St. John's College at Cambridge that fall. His uncle taught at the college, so he had a nice little connection. And when he starts at St. John, he is a sizer, aka he has a scholarship. And in exchange for the scholarship, he has to do various small chores for the other students because that's how scholarships used to work in England, which definitely isn't problematic at all. The idea is that William Wordsworth will do really well academically at Cambridge. He will eventually win a spot as a fellow thanks to his stellar academic performance and will then become a clergyman like his uncle. And it starts out working really well. His first term, Wordsworth gets highest honors. But then he realizes, yeah, I'm not that interested in math and kind of stops studying. 
By his second year, William's grades start slipping. He doesn't really study that much and just spends all of his time reading with a big focus on the classics, Italian authors, and more modern authors. And confession time, that's a little bit what I did in college. If I had a class that I wasn't super into and I wanted to avoid my work, I would go into the library with really bad Wi-Fi and just read a novel instead, which is one of the reasons why I didn't do super great in statistics, but I read a lot of trollop novels that particular term. In addition to spending a lot of time reading instead of studying, William Wordsworth also starts seriously writing poetry. During his second term at Cambridge, he starts working on a longer poem, An Evening Walk, which is all about the Lake District, and really starts drinking a lot. So in short, he really had that classic college experience of avoiding homework, drinking heavily, and writing poetry. In the middle of his time in Cambridge in 1790, he and a college chum decide to go on a walking tour of the Alps. They cover about 3,000 miles in three months, which makes me a little bit sick just to think of. During this walking tour, William Wordsworth is going to visit France and Switzerland. He actually lands in France on the one-year anniversary of the fall of the Bastille, but because William Wordsworth is a college kid who doesn't care that much about politics, he doesn't actually write about that experience, which is kind of a shame because that was quite a historical moment. And William Wordsworth doesn't really care that much about the stuff going on around him during this trip. For example, during his time hiking in Switzerland, he doesn't realize that he had climbed the summit of the Alps because he's thinking about other things, which is such a William Wordsworth moment. After this walking tour, he goes back to Cambridge and takes his final exams. He aggressively does not study for his final exams and instead spends the days leading up to them reading. He manages to pass those exams and he does graduate Cambridge. However, he graduates without honors, which means he is not offered a spot as a fellow, which means he will not become a clergyman and he has completely destroyed the hopes and dreams of his family like so many college graduates before and since. After graduating Cambridge, Bourdois spends about a year bouncing between London, Wales, and Bristol without a job. While he's in London, he goes to Parliament and listens to debates about the French Revolution. As he's listening to these debates, Wordsworth becomes really interested in France and the revolution. He's a really idealistic college graduate, and he starts identifying very strongly with the revolutionaries. He's like, I'm a revolutionary too. The third estate and the peasants in France, they are exactly the same as I am, even though they really aren't. William's family wants him to become a clergyman, like his uncle, but William Wordsworth is like, yeah, no, that's not at all interesting to me. He also goes down to Wales and climbs Mount Snowdon with the friend who he had done the walking tour with, and he's just sort of trying to figure out what he wants to do and can't quite figure it out. But then, in 1792, he has an idea. 
he decides he's going to go to France, he's going to learn French so that he can become a traveling partner for a rich gentleman and so that he can figure out his feelings about the French Revolution. He moves to the town of Orléans in France and while he's there, he meets a young woman named Annette Vallon. Annette is poor, royalist, and Catholic. She also apparently is very beautiful because she and William start an affair and William follows her to her hometown of Blois, which I completely mispronounced. I'm really sorry. Very quickly, Annette gets pregnant. While Annette is pregnant, William befriends two local men, Michel Bupoy and Henri Grigory, both of whom are members of the revolution, unlike the royalist Annette. They convince him that the revolution is good and that he should become a revolutionary. And while he's thinking through his ideas on the revolution, Wordsworth writes a new poem, descriptive sketches, and begins talking marriage with Annette. And it's like, oh yes, I will definitely marry you. And Annette is very convinced that she will marry Wordsworth. She writes a ton of letters to Dorothy to this effect, although only two of these letters survive to the present day. Eventually, the political situation in France is heating up to a pretty uncomfortable level. We're getting closer and closer to the reign of terror and Madame Guillotine just killing everyone. And eventually, William Wordsworth is like, yeah, sorry, Annette, I'm piecing out back to England. It's a little bit unclear why exactly William Wordsworth decided to abandon Annette, who, remember, is pregnant with his child, and go back to England. It may have been because of the political situation in France. It may have been because Annette was Catholic, and William Wordsworth was pretty anti-Catholic, as many English people at the time were, and it may have been because he was deeply in love with his childhood friend, Mary Hutchinson. No matter the reason, William Wordsworth leaves France without Annette, and right as he leaves, Annette gives birth to his first child, a girl, Anne Caroline, and Wordsworth is like, okay, that's cool, bye, I'm definitely not financially supporting you because I can't even financially support myself. The next few years aren't exactly great for William Wordsworth. His clergyman uncle offers him a position as a curate, but immediately takes it back when he finds out about the whole getting a French woman pregnant out of wedlock and having an illegitimate daughter thing. Wordsworth does manage to sell the two poems he had been working on, his undergraduate masterpiece, An Evening Walk, and the poem he'd written in France, Descriptive Sketches, but neither of them sell well. That being said, a young student named Samuel Coleridge reads both poems and enjoys them greatly and is like, huh, I want to get to know this William Wordsworth. In the meantime, England declares war on France because of the whole executing Louis XIV and Marie Antoinette thing, and this declaration of war makes William Wordsworth super depressed and annoyed. He's so angry that he writes this long essay 
criticizing England's decision, and he really wants to publish it, but the older members of the Wordsworth family are like, no, do not publish it, because if you publish this essay, you will get arrested for treason and possibly executed. Around this time, the family starts restricting his access to his younger sister, Dorothy, because they are afraid that he's going to start influencing her and turning her into a radical as well. But in 1795, things are slowly going to start looking up for William. One of his friends, Raisley Calvert, is going to give him 900 pounds because Wordsworth had helped nurse him through a bout of tuberculosis. The Calverts live in the Lake District, which as we remember is where Wordsworth had grown up, and Wordsworth tours through there with the Calvert family, and he really annoys it, and suddenly he has 900 pounds, which is around $100,000 in today's money, So he could now pursue a full-time writing career without having to worry about, I don't know, starving to death. And William Wordsworth decides to do this. He and a friend, he and a friend start their own humanist magazine called The Philanthropist with the money. The Philanthropist is very inspired by the works and ideology of William Godwin, who I promise is going to continue coming up in various episodes on the English Romantics because, oh boy, does he inspire a bunch of them slash is related to a lot of them. William Wordsworth does end up meeting with Godwin in 1795, and through William Godwin, he meets this guy, Basil Montague. Basil Montague has a young son, and this young son needs a tutor slash babysitter to live with and educate him in Dorset. Basil Montague really likes William Wordsworth and offers him this tutor slash babysitting position along with a rent-free house. And William Wordsworth is like, Okay, cool, I'll take this position as long as my sister Dorothy can come along with me. And Basil Montague is like, yeah, Dorothy can come with you. And William Wordsworth is like, that's sick. As a side note, by this time, William was super falling out with Godwin because he felt like Godwin was too rational and didn't pay enough attention to human emotion. So he's really lucky that Basil Montague showed up when he did. By the end of 1795, William, Dorothy, and Montague's son moved down to Dorset, and William and Dorothy settled down in this nice house slash cottage, which they're not paying rent on, called Racedown Lodge. In the summer of 1797, June 5th, 1797 to be precise, Samuel Coleridge and his family are staying in Western England right by William and Dorothy. Like we established, Samuel Coleridge really enjoyed William Wordsworth's poems. And he decides to hike over to Racedown Lodge and see if Wordsworth is in. Luckily for Coleridge and for history, William Wordsworth was at home that day. Samuel Coleridge 
literally leaps over the fence when he sees William, and the two start up a conversation. This isn't as weird as it sounds. The two had been in the same London writing and intellectual circles, so they did kind of know each other. It wasn't like a complete stranger was leaping over the fence. Samuel Coleridge ends up spending two weeks with William and Dorothy, talking about politics, writing, and taking long walks, kickstarting a really long friendship. In July, William and Dorothy end up leaving Race Down Lodge and moving to a new house, Alfoxton, in order to be closer to the Coleridge home. Over the next year, William, Coleridge, and Dorothy spend a ton of time walking together discussing poetry, and Dorothy is going to cha- and Dorothy is going to transcribe all of the poems that they write in this time, which I think is just very classic men talking and women, you know, actually putting in the work so that these discussions can be kept for prosperity. The relationship between William, Dorothy, and Coleridge causes a bit of a scandal in the local town because everyone thinks they are up to something sexual because why else would a married man hang out with two single siblings or maybe their secret French agents? Because remember, William Wordsworth had lived in France and both he and Coleridge are known to hang out with intellectual radicals like William Godwin. They never really get investigated for being secret French agents. They were not secret French agents. And as far as we know, no one was having an affair with anyone else. The summer of 1797 ends up having a major impact on William Wordsworth. It really pushes him to start writing again. And he begins working on this large poem that explores humanity and nature, which ends up being the poem, The Prelude, which won't actually be published until after Wordsworth's death. Coleridge also inspires this burst of writing for Wordsworth, which will include Wordsworth's first big commercial success, lines composed a few miles above Tintern Abbey, and also challenges William Wordsworth to write an epic poem, which he will eventually do. The two also start working on a collection of poems together that will eventually make up lyrical ballads. And in 1798, the two publish lyrical ballads. And I don't think it's a stretch to say that lyrical ballads really revolutionizes English poetry. When Lyrical Ballads first gets published in 1798, Wordsworth and Coleridge are just publishing it to raise money for a trip to Germany. Most of the poems in Lyrical Ballads are written by Wordsworth, but the collection includes Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, which means that Coleridge's writing takes up an equal amount of space within the collection. And trust me, I will be talking a lot about Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner in next week's study guide. Within Lyrical Ballads, all of the poetry is written in a more natural style than was regular for the time period. And most of the poems are about nature. It doesn't really sell that well. It doesn't get a really great reception. However, it is going to be republished 
in 1800 with a really famous preface by William Wordsworth, where he's going to outline his ideas around poetry. But I'll discuss more about that in the section about Wordsworth's writing. Even though Lyrical Ballads doesn't sell super well, it does raise some money. So the next year, Wordsworth, Dorothy, and Coleridge do manage to take their trip to Germany. It doesn't go super well. Coleridge is getting subsidized by a wealthy friend, so he's able to stay in nice lodgings during the trip, but the Wordsworths do not have any subsidies. They have to stay in less nice accommodations. Also, for most of the trip, they're really homesick, they don't speak any German, and tensions are kind of rising between them and Coleridge. We're starting to see some small cracks in this friendship. Also, during this entire trip, Coleridge is married, but aggressively left his wife and children at home. Good, good job, Coleridge. You're a great human being. After the trip, they come back to England, and William and Dorothy leave the cottage of Alfoxton and settle in a new town in the Lake District, the town of Grasmere. They like Grasmere much better than Alfoxton because, as it turns out, the people in Grasmere are a little bit less judgy. They're not assuming that the two are having some sort of incesty relationship. And on top of it, their brother John comes to visit them. He gives them interior design help and also lends them some money. During the time in Grasmere, William continues writing poems, and these poems are really going to be focused on nature and the Lake District. In 1802, William goes to France. He is able to visit France for the first time since 1792 because of the Treaty of Amiens, which led to a short-lived peace between Napoleon and England. While he's in France, he meets his daughter, Anne Caroline, for the first time and settles his long-standing issues with Annette. That same year, the lawsuit that had been kicked off by his father's death is finally ended, so William finally gets some of his inheritance. William Wordsworth has an income, so he is able to marry his childhood friend, Mary Hutchinson. Dorothy doesn't handle William's marriage all that well. She's kind of afraid of losing her brother, but she and Mary were also childhood friends, and it ends up being pretty okay as a kind of weird little side note the night before the wedding William visits Dorothy and like takes the wedding ring for Mary and like puts it on Dorothy's finger and is all don't worry sister I won't forget you which is sweet but also kind of creepy William and Mary will have a very happy marriage. People named William and Mary often do. They will have five children. Two of them are going to die young tragically. Mary also convinces William to, you know, actually send money to his first child, Anne Caroline. And William's like, oh sure, I will totally financially support my illegitimate daughter. Although he doesn't actually start doing that until 1816 when Anne Caroline gets married. After William's marriage to Mary, William, Dorothy, 
William and Dorothy stay incredibly close. Dorothy is going to live with the Wordsworth family for the rest of her life. And Mary's younger sister, Sarah Hutchinson, is also going to move in with them and sort of be part of the little Wordsworth gang. Samuel Coleridge is going to fall in love with Sarah Hutchinson. And she doesn't really return his affection which is probably a good thing because, remember, Samuel Coleridge is aggressively married with children. Even though things start out well, it's not going to stay good for long. First, in 1805, William's younger brother John dies from drowning when the ship he's on sinks, which is super upsetting to both William and Dorothy because after their close relationship. John was the sibling they were the closest to. William ends up writing a long elegy in John's honor. And then by the end of the 1800s, William starts having quite a bit of a falling out with Coleridge. It all starts over lyrical ballads because Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner was the bit of lyrical ballads that was the least popular and got the harshest criticism. Also, as we recall, most of lyrical ballads was made up of William Wordsworth's poems. So there was a bit of an imbalance, which started a bit of a rift between the two. On top of that, Samuel Coleridge has a very large opium addiction, which is making him more than a little bit unstable. While this is going on, William Wordsworth is having to deal with various family dramas, like the fact that two of his children die young of various diseases, which is really tough on both him and Mary. Coolridge isn't at all helpful with these family issues. William Wordsworth can't spend that much time helping Coolridge deal with his opium addiction, and the two start getting into fights. They start drifting apart. Instead of spending all of his time with Coleridge, William Wordsworth starts spending more and more time with an artist, Sir George Beaumont, who becomes one of Wordsworth's patrons. By 1810, Wordsworth and Coleridge basically are estranged. A few years later, in 1813, the family leaves Grasmere for the town of Rydal Mount. They move to Rydal Mount because Mary Wordsworth just can't handle living across from the graveyard where two of her children are buried. When they move to Rydal Mount, Wordsworth is like, hey Coolridge, you should come visit us in our new home. And Coolridge does not, which basically marks the end of their friendship. In Rydal Mount, once again, the family is dealing with some financial issues. As it turns out, one of Wordsworth's surviving brothers, Richard, had lost quite a bit of the family money. Lord Lowther, the one who had caused all of that drama earlier on in Wordsworth's life when his father died, comes through and offers to pay Wordsworth about a hundred pounds a year. And Wordsworth has pride and says, no, I'm not taking your money. But luckily, Wordsworth gets appointed to be the distributor of stamps for the local area. By 
as distributor of stamps, this means that he's in charge of the return of stamped and taxed papers used for legal things. It's very businessy and very boring, but it means that the Wordsworth family has a regular income without having to rely on the generosity of the hated Lord Lowther. However, by accepting this government position, and remember, the government at this time is the hated and repressive Tories, a lot of people, like Lord Byron, say that Wordsworth is being a hypocrite by siding with the Tories. But I don't think that's fair. Wordsworth, unlike Lord Byron, had a large family that he needed to support. He did not have family money to fall back on. What was he supposed to do? Let his family starve? I think not. In 1814, William Wordsworth finally publishes that epic poem that Coleridge had challenged him to write. The poem is known as The Recluse, and Wordsworth is really proud of this poem, but when it's published, it gets terrible reviews, including from Coleridge, who said that Wordsworth had failed at the task of writing an epic poem. Jeez, thanks, Coleridge. Thanks to the financial issues that he's still having to deal with, Wordsworth starts to lean a little bit more Tory, which is making him less and less popular in romantic circles. Basically, things aren't looking great for William Wordsworth. However, by 1820, things start going uphill once again. He starts seeing some commercial success after a series of his nature poems get really commercially and critically well-received. This allows him to republish his earlier works, which once again are well-received. It turns out after about 20 years of time to reflect, the general reading public really likes the idea of nature and the imagination. Finally, William Wordsworth is making money and getting the critical attention he deserved. Peace in Europe also means that he's able to bring his family to France. He's able to visit his daughter, Anne Caroline. He introduces Anne Caroline to his wife, Mary, and the meeting goes pretty well. He even kind of reconciles with Coleridge in 1828. Coleridge, William, and his daughter Dora go on a little trip to Germany, Belgium, and the Netherlands. And yes, the trip does have its awkward moments. By the end of the trip, Wordsworth and Coleridge are kind of sick of each other, but hey, at least they reconciled enough to go on the trip. By the end of the 1820s, William's home in Rydal Mount is becoming a bit of a shrine. William's popular. People like John Stuart Mill and Ralph Waldo Emerson are visiting him to talk to him about his poetry and his ideas. In 1829, Dorothy does get really sick. She's going to spend the rest of her life as an invalid at Rydal Mount, but she is going to survive. By the 1830s, a lot of Wordsworth's po intellectual friends are going to start 
dying. In 1834, both Coleridge and Charles Lamb die, and by the end of Wordsworth's life, he's sort of going to be alone. Most of his friends and contemporaries are dead, as are most of his family members. In 1839, Wordsworth gets an honorary doctorate from Oxford, which is very exciting. In 1842, the English government grants him an annual pension. In the next year, he becomes the poet laureate of England after another romantic poet and current English poet laureate Robert Southey dies. William Wordsworth is England's only poet laureate not to write any poetry as the poet laureate. He feels like he's too old for the job and had wasted his life, which I don't know, that seems a little questionable to me. William Wordsworth, in my opinion, had quite a full and exciting life. In 1847, William Wordsworth's favorite daughter, Dora, dies, and Dora's death kind of marks the end of William Wordsworth's writing. He doesn't write anything after her death. William Wordsworth finally dies on April 23rd, 1850, of pleurisy. He is survived by both his wife, Mary, and his beloved sister, Dorothy. After his death, his wife, Mary, has his magnus opus, Prelude, published, and I feel like this is sort of the classic case of women getting shit done. I mean, not really, because obviously William Wordsworth wrote and published so much in his lifetime, but Prelude sort of was his great work that he never quite managed to get published in his life, and it sort of fell on his wife to do once he was dead. And also, let us not forget that it was his sister Dorothy who physically transcribed most of his early poems that became part of lyrical ballads. So maybe William Wordsworth's life was a classic case of women getting shit done after all. So, for those listeners who prefer bullet points to lectures, let's do a quick little recap of the life of William Wordsworth. William Wordsworth is born to a family that I would argue is solidly middle class. His father is a lawyer and land agent for a lord. His childhood is fairly happy. He's well-educated. He grows up wandering in nature, bouncing between his family home and the relatives of his mother when his father is out of town. However, all of that changes when he's eight and his mother dies. The Wordsworth siblings are tragically separated and William is sent to the Hawkshead Grammar School where he excels and learns to love poetry, especially writing poetry. When William's father dies at the age of 13, the Wordsworth children get plunged into uncertainty as their father did not leave behind a will and there's not enough money to send all the children to school. William, thanks to his excellence in the classroom, is chosen to go to Cambridge on a scholarship. He does so. However, he quickly realizes that math isn't his thing, starts starts to blow off class and starts to blow off class for reading and writing poetry instead and ends up graduating college without honors and job prospects. 
Luckily for William, he does manage to reunite with his favorite sibling, his younger sister, Dorothy. After college, William does the classic college grad thing of bouncing around unemployed until he moves to France to learn French and learn all about that French Revolution thing. While he's in France, he enters into an affair with a French Catholic girl, Annette, gets her pregnant and pieces out of the country. He moves back to England, once again, bouncing around, aimless, without a job, but full of radical political ideas. He ends up getting an inheritance of 900 pounds, or about $100,000 in today's money, from a friend. He uses that to set up a magazine, and then gets another windfall, because a friend of a friend offers William and Dorothy the position of tutor for his son. William and Dorothy take this job opportunity and move down to the Lake District. In the Lake District, they befriend fellow writer Samuel Coolridge, and William, Coolridge, and Dorothy embark in an epic friendship of conversation and poetry writing. Out of this friendship comes the infamous lyrical ballads, which will revolutionize English poetry, even though it initially gets awful reviews. Coolridge, Dorothy, and William go on a fun little Euro trip, but quickly start falling out, because as it turns out, Coolridge is hooked on opium. During this time, William gets married to his childhood BFF, Mary Hutchinson, has a few kids, and continues writing poetry. William, Dorothy, and Coolridge end up having a pretty massive falling out, mostly because of Coolridge's jealousy and opium addiction. The Wordsworth family plus Dorothy moves yet again. Wordsworth continues writing his poetry, gets a government gig, falls out with the romantics because of the government gig, kind of struggles along, but by the 1820s gets a surge in popularity because, oh my gosh, would you look at that? He was right. His poetry is amazing after all, and by the end of his life, William Wordsworth is the poet laureate of England before dying in 1850. So, that is William Wordsworth. Let's talk about his writing. Big picture, William Wordsworth is all about sounding natural. I know nowadays in 2019, his poetry might sound a little bit formal and complicated the way anything written in 1800 sounds formal and complicated, but when he was publishing, it was super casual and therefore revolutionary. William Wordsworth is pushing away from classical forms, which he felt like were overly stylized and had overly heightened diction. Instead, William Wordsworth is going to be emphasizing the self and nature. And that means writing in a way that sounds more natural, the way that people actually talk. And at the start of his career, in the late 1790s and early 1800s, this is going to be really unpopular, but by the 1820s, everyone realizes, oh yeah, William Wordsworth was right. William Wordsworth's first big success is going to be the 1798 lyrical ballads. A lot of scholars see 
lyrical ballads as being the start of the Romantic movement, although, as I discussed in both the William Blake episode and the Robert Burns tangent casts, both of those poets are definitely Romantics, and they came before lyrical ballads. In lyrical ballads, Wordsworth really focuses on using normal, everyday language and not the fancy, elevated language of the neoclassical movement. He's going to really use nature as the subject of his poems and create this hybrid poetic form, aka the lyrical ballad, that combines first-person emotion-focused lyric with the narrative ballad form. The 1800 edition of Lyrical Ballads is probably the most famous version of Lyrical Ballads because this includes the preface by Wordsworth, where he explains why he and Coleridge wrote these poems and what their goal in these poems were. It basically is an explanation of the Romantic movement, and in this preface, he talks about how they're trying to combine the natural and the poetic, and it includes Wordsworth's famous definition of poetry as, quote, the spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings. It takes its origin from the emotion recollected in tranquility. But lyrical ballads aren't the only famous poems that Wordsworth does. We also have the Lucy Poems, which is a group of five poems from lyrical ballads, all of which are written by Wordsworth during his time in Germany. They're all written to a Lucy. Lucy's identity is unknown. It might be Dorothy, but it also could have just been this trope character that Wordsworth created. And all of these poems are mourning Lucy and the fact that she died young. Initially, they weren't meant to be a group. They were grouped together later on in later anthologies, and they include strange fits of passion I have known. She dwelt among untrodden ways. I traveled among unknown men. Three years she grew in sun and shower, and a slumber did my spirit steal. Weirdly enough, Lucy Gray is not part of the Lucy poems, which I find funny. We also have the prelude, which was sort of William Wordsworth's magnum opus. He wrote it throughout his life, starting when he was about 28, but it was not published until after his death. It's basically about the spiritual life of a poet. It's extremely autobiographical. Initially, Wordsworth meant it just to be a prologue to another poem, but it ended up being this 14-book epic thing, and it's written in blank verse, which I think shows, one, how inspiring Shakespeare and Milton were to Wordsworth, and two, how he was pushing against the classic forms that were really popular in his lifetime. Wordsworth wrote a ton of other poems, going through all of them would make this podcast hours long, and I don't want to do that to anyone. Some of his other major poems were The White Doe of Rylestone, which was super poorly reviewed in his lifetime, and The Recluse, which I discussed. It was his attempt at an epic poem, and it was just savaged 
by critics for how it handled religion. As always, for the romantics, I am going to close this episode out with a poem by Wordsworth. I was thinking about doing his famous daffodil poem, but everyone has probably read that and I'm kind of sick of it. I've taught it so many times at this point. So instead, I'm doing She Dwelt Among Untrodden Ways, which is part of his Lucy poems. It was published in 1800 as part of the second edition of Lyrical Ballads. I really enjoy it because I think it shows how simple Wordsworth could be in his language, but how he could still convey these really strong emotions. Here we go. She dwelt among the untrodden ways beside the springs of dove, a maid whom there were none to praise and very few to love. A violet by a mossy stone, half hidden from the eye, fair as a star when only one is shining in the sky. She lived unknown and few could know when Lucy ceased to be. But she is in her grave, and oh, the difference is to me. I just really like the poem. It's short, it's strong. I think it shows the best of William Wordsworth. In the next study guide, I'm going to be diving in to Samuel Taylor Coleridge and his very poor life choices. For this episode, my sources included Dale Anderson's essay, Biography of William Wordsworth from the 2003 collection William Wordsworth, which was edited by Harold Bloom, Juliet Barker's 2000 book Wordsworth a Life, Edwin Paxton Hood's 1856 biography, William Wordsworth a Biography, F.B. Pinion's 1984 A Wordsworth Companion, and Admin Sisman's 2007 book The Friendship Wordsworth and Coleridge. If you want to see full citations as well as images, you can visit the website sadgirlstudyguides.com. Until then, you can find the podcast on various social medias. There's the Twitter at sadgirlstudypod. If you want some fun, dank memes, you can check out the Instagram at Sad Girl Study. If you want to support the podcast financially, there's the Patreon at patreon.com slash sadgirlstudyguides. If you join at the $5 a month level or above, you get access to the Oh So Cool bi-monthly tangent casts where I talk about people, places, or things that didn't quite fit into the larger study guides. As always, if you have questions, comments, or concerns, you can email the study guide at sadgirlstudyguide at gmail.com and the best way of helping the show grow is by telling a friend or subscribing we're available at apple podcasts google podcasts stitcher or soundcloud and please let me know how i'm doing rate and review or else i'll be sad thank you